Hello, AP United States history students, and welcome to the next edition of our podcast. Uh, this is the first one that is featuring me, Mr. Craven, rather than Mr. Ashworth. Um, we hope that you're getting what you need to out of these podcasts as a way to uh, fill in some of the content gaps, as well as some of the more interesting discussion gaps that we have in our class as we uh, work in this hybrid model. Um, and for those of you that don't know me, I am Mr. Craven. Uh, I've been teaching AP United States history for seven years now. And today, what I would like to tackle uh, after Mr. Ashworth did such a great job looking at various aspects of the Constitution is some common misperceptions of the American Revolution. And the big question that we want to answer today is why did the colonies revolt against Britain? If you were an average adult American and you were accosted on the street, as so frequently happens, with an impromptu history quiz, and you were asked why the colonies revolted against Britain, you would probably get that answer wrong. And that's because the myths that we have spread about the revolution have distorted the real difficulties between the colonists and Britain. So what I'd like to do is kind of go through three potential answers to that question that you normally might hear, um, you know, maybe not in the same language that I'll go through them, but that you would probably hear from most people when asked about uh, why the Americans revolted. And we'll talk about why those are wrong. Um, and then we'll start to suggest some real answers. And obviously, as, as we go through class, uh, you'll also hear some more about these real answers. But it's just some suggestions to get your thinking started. So maybe not the, the most popular answer, but an answer that you might hear would be something about the colonial relationship between the colonists and Britain particularly the economic relationship. So these would, would fall under what I would call problems with mercantilism, problems with the notion of mercantilism. So as we all know, under mercantilism, the American colonists were, were expected to provide raw materials and resources to the British. In exchange, the British would transform those resources and raw materials into manufactured goods send them and other goods that the colonists could not get elsewhere back to the colonies. Um, and the colonists would buy them as kind of a ca captive market to the British. Now, various studies of colonialism, uh, looking at colonies all over the world, would indicate that this you know, system was not at all helpful to the colonies or usually not helpful to the colonies. But we have ample evidence that for the United States colonies, the American colonies, the relationship established under mercantilism was not a significant problem. And for this, I would point to two things. The first is when the Navigation Acts were initially enacted by Britain, and you read about these in your summer assignments in 1651 and 1660, so going all the way back to the 17th century, uh, the colonists did not greatly react against these, either through political protest, boycotts, or other actions that would become famous in future protests over things like the Stamp Act or the Townsend Acts. Um, 
remember the navigation acts required that the colonists uh, ship any good goods that came to the colonies through Britain to transform to transport them on British ships and to have those goods be taxed by Britain on their way to the colonies. Um, and none of this really caused a lot of difficulty as far as the colonists were concerned. We ask ourselves, why is that the case? And my answer would be that for the most part, as long as the British were passing laws that forced the colonists to play their appointed role in mercantilism, uh, then the colonists did not complain. Now, that's not to say they loved these policies, right? But that they understood them and they weren't willing to revolt over them. Another example of this is the Molasses Act. In 1733, the British passed their first significant tax act in the colonies. Uh, and it was a tax on goods, on molasses, brought in from places other than British territories. It was targeted directly at molasses that the colonists were bringing in from the French West Indies. Again, this is a tax act, a trade-based tax act, much like what the British would pass later and cause the, the movement toward the American Revolution. But in this case, it provoked little controversy. And again, it kind of fit into mercantilism. Americans understood that these, this act was meant to make them buy their molasses from Britain. And if they weren't going to buy it from Britain, they were just going to pay more for it, right? And so the colonists did not protest. So I think that the, the notion that this was a regular colonial struggle, the colonists disliking the economic system that was created by colonialism, doesn't stand up to much scrutiny. A second and probably more popular reason that any average American adult might give to why the colonists declared their independence was that the taxes that the British were charging were extraordinarily high, that the taxes themselves were tyrannical. But again, this concept, when examined, does not hold up. If you look back in 2007, 2008, 2009, when a new conservative movement rose, a grassroots conservative mo movement, or at least some people say it was grassroots, others question that, called the Tea Party, they took their name from, of course, the Boston Tea Party in order to show their opposition to big government and particularly big government taxation. But that name contributes to a misremembrance of the Tea Act, certainly, but also of the basic problem with taxation that the American colonists had. The truth is this. By 1714, the average citizen of Great Britain, that is a citizen of the British Empire living in England, in Scotland, in Wales and in Ireland, which remember all of Ireland was at this point under British control, paid 10 times the taxes of the equivalent colonist. 
That's right. For every one piece of currency that a colonist paid in taxation to Britain, the average citizen of the British Isles paid 10. Now, this varied widely from colony to colony, and the Massachusetts, where we live, was one of the highest taxed colonies in the 13. Um, so for us, it was only about five times uh, the taxes, five to six times. But still, even for the high tax colonies uh, of, of America, very little of a colonist's income was being sent to Britain. And this was true of taxation generally. Uh, British citizens living in the British Isles paid roughly 20% of their income in some kind of tax to the government, not all in income taxes, some in property taxes and other fees charged by the British government, while American colonists paid only 1% to 2% of their income. A huge difference. And this was due to both lower taxes on the uh, lower taxes from the British and from their local governments, but also the fact that most American colonists earned a higher annual income than the average citizen of Britain. So the colonists were really making out all right. As I mentioned, this also was a chance for us to kind of clear up some misconceptions about the Tea Act itself. So we remember the Boston Tea Party as a gigantic tax protest, but that kind of misstates what the Tea Act actually was. It would surprise many of you to know that the Tea Act did not raise the price of tea, certainly not the price of British tea, in the American colonies. And in fact, there had been a tax on tea by the British going back to the Townsend Acts passed earlier in the dispute between the British and the colonies. Um, the Tea Act actually cut those taxes cut the taxes that were already in place and limited the price that American colonists would have to pay for British tea. So why do we remember things differently? Because the Tea Act is messy compared to some of the other acts that we talk about more frequently. The Stamp Act is quite clearly a tax act on paper products. The Sugar Act, a tax act on sugar and other related goods. Um, the Townsend duties, even while having a different name, are also just taxes on goods that the colonists brought in from outside. The Tea Act was not that. When you think of the Tea Act, I would like you to think of the various acts of the American government passed in the waning days of the George W. Bush presidency and into the beginning of the Barack Obama presidency to save American industries in the aftermath of an economic collapse, the Great Recession. The Tea Act was passed because the British East India Company, which controlled the British tea trade, was running, on, running into hard times. They were facing competition from other com companies chartered by France and by the Dutch to try to extract tea and other items from East Asia, South Asia, and the area around India, also engaged right, obviously in South Asia. Um, the British East India Company was drowning in debt and high cost of doing business against this, this uh, competition. And among the places where the competition was starting to eat into their profits 
were the American colonies. In the American colonies, merchants, mostly from New England, but really up and down the Atlantic seaboard, ran the tea trade for the colonies. They got their tea from Britain, from the British East India Company, from Dutch sources, from French sources. They got them from all over the world. And although tea was a product that was taxed by the British and the British expected the colonists to get their tea from Britain, many merchants smuggled in their tea from other sources. Many of those sources sold their tea cheaper or cheaply to the colonists than the British did. So the British East India Company petitioned Parliament to change the laws so that their tea would come into colonial ports more cheaply. The Tea Act responded to that petition in two important ways. The first is that it cut the tax on tea that Britain's, the British Parliament was charging. So the tea would, be, would cost less coming into the colonies. The second thing it did was it allowed British East India Company merchants to sell their tea directly to the colonies without the stop in Britain required by the Navigation Acts and without dealing with colonial merchants. The British East India Company could now bring their tea directly to the American seaboard, unload it in the colonies, and sell it to the colonists without paying colonial merchants or the British government anything. The goal of the Tea Act was to bail out the British East India Company. And the biggest reason for the Boston Tea Party was that most of the members of the Sons of Liberty of Massachusetts were colonial merchants who suddenly faced real economic catastrophe. Not only would they stop making as much money from the British tea trade, but colonists, once they learned that tea that they liked better, British tea that they liked better, was cheaper than the alternatives from uh, France and the Dutch, would suddenly buy only British tea directly from the British, and the colonial merchants would stop making a lot of money on a lucrative trade. So again, they would stop making money from Britain, they would also stop making money from France, French and Dutch tea that they were bringing in illegally. So again, you look at this question of taxes were high, and it really does not hold up to any kind of examination. The final answer that you would most likely receive is the answer about British tyranny actual abuse of power by Britain. But as APUS history students, you already know that this is not accurate. That through most of Britain's history with their American colonies, they followed a practice called solitary neglect, where the colonies were basically allowed to govern themselves. This was so true that the British were slow to use powers that their constitution actually gave them. And remember, Britain has no written constitution, no formal written constitution, but even British common law gave Britain power over its colonies that they neglected to use. Over the course of British control over the colonies, 
the colonial legislatures, representatives elected directly by the upper class of the colonies, passed more than 9,000 individual statutes for their colonies. And again, there was no, remember, universal colonial legislature. These were individual colonial legislatures for each colony. And again, they passed over 9,000 laws governing the way that the colonists lived and worked and traded colony to colony and colony with the rest of the world. Despite the fact that Britain held a veto power over colonial legislation, the British only used that power in less than 5% of cases. And all of those laws, all of the laws that the British chose to veto can be seen as violations of mercantilism. They were trade policies that the colonists probably didn't have the right within the colonial model to make in the first place. When you seriously look at the run-up to the revolution, only the coercive acts passed in 1774 and the prohibitory act passed in 1775 in which the king severed his relations with his colonies declared them to be in rebellion, prepared to put down that rebellion, could really be called tyrannical. Up until then, most of the things that the colonists saw as tyrannical were misunderstandings. Consider the proclamation of 1763, which the colonists saw as an unjust attempt to stop their expansion, but the British saw as a cost-saving measure for colonies that were now starting to cost them way too much money in the wake of the French and Indian War. The same can be said for even obvious examples, quote unquote obvious examples, like the Quartering Act, where the colonists saw this as an attempt by the British, as well it might have been at least partially, to look over their shoulders constantly, to have British soldiers sleeping in their farmhouses, the British saw this as a justifiable cost of doing business, as a way for them again to save money on the defense of these far-flung colonies. These were acts that were tyrannical only from the colonial point of view. And if you take a British point of view, they're certainly not. But I would argue that in most cases, if you take it from a, a neutral point of view, particularly based on how the world ran in the 18th century, it would be hard to call British actions tyrannical. So this leads us to our last point. On what do we blame the revolution? And I'm going to suggest to you that you start to look for the answer to that question in three areas all of which we'll talk more about as we get into class. The first is actual philosophical issues that had developed between the British and the Americans during the period of solitary neglect. Solitary neglect did have an impact on political thinking in the colonies, creating a system that was at least partially representative and more representative than Britain's, 
that relied on geographical or actual representation over the British system of virtual representation, where a citizen of London could be just as easily represented by a citizen of Liverpool uh, than they could uh, the person next door to them. An idea that never traveled to America as a result of solitary neglect. Um, these were the issues, uh, you know, that that struck between Britain and the colonies. So that when the colonists began using ter phrases like "no taxation without representation," the British could be excused for not understanding what that meant. Of course, they were represented. The British said. They represented just like every member of the British Empire is represented in Parliament. But the definitions of representation had clearly changed between Britain and her colonies in America. So this is one issue that we can really point to as starting the revolution. The second, let's return to that phrase of no taxation without representation because there was a tax problem between the British and the colonies. It was just a lot more complicated. So here we wanna remember what the colonists actually meant by no taxation without representation. And that brings us back to that issue between actual and virtual representation. The colonists believed that the only legitimate purpose for money to be raised in the colonies, not trade policy, right? They were fine with the Molasses Act because it forced them to buy goods from Britain. It also gave Britain more money, but that wasn't the point, right? The only legitimate reason to literally just use the colonies as an ATM machine, extract money from them, was to use that money on the betterment of the colonies. And in order to make decisions like that, you needed those decisions to be made by colonial leaders and colonial representatives. Not a handful of represent representatives in parliament. Some Americans, again today, I think, would think that America would have been fine with that. They would not, right? They thought that there were some decisions that needed to be made locally. And the question of who gets to take money out of my pocket, how much they get to take, and what they get to do with it, were among those questions. So they wanted their own representatives, their own colonial legislatures, to make decisions about taxation for taxation's sake, not taxation for trade's sake, right? Make that distinction, but taxation for taxation's sake, just to raise money, to be made locally. So we can imagine a world where Britain kind of sent a bill to the colonists and said, you guys decide how to pay it. And the colonists might have been able to reach some accommodation with the British. But of course, that's not how the British went about it. And so discussions about British tyranny started. But again, even here, we mostly have a misunderstanding about what's meant by representation. And we don't want to leave entirely absent, as we'll talk about, and as Mr. Ashworth has already talked about in his section about the conservatism of the Constitution about the people who had power in the colonies already, the upper class merchants of New England, the merchants and wealthy landowners of the middle colonies, the big plantation owners of the Chesapeake and South. The, 
desire of the men who already had power to maintain it. As long as power was drifting away from them and toward colonial, uh, toward rep royal representatives sent by the king, this was not going to be an acceptable outcome. And so those merchants, we can debate the extent to which this is true, used events like the Boston Massacre and Boston Tea Party to whip up concerns about British tyranny and eventually constructed a system that allowed them to maintain a lot of power. A system that was partially democratic and representative that met the philosophies that the colonists had start to build over the period of solitary neglect, but that also maintained power for a landed and powerful and wealthy aristocracy that had built up in the colonies as well during the period of solitary neglect. Again, we will debate, we should debate, we can debate the degree to which this was true. You know, how much do we blame, we place the, the blame on each of these three suggestions that I've made. How much we want to focus on the power of a wealthy class of Americans. And I don't think that was everything, right? America was becoming a more democratic, more representative place at the same time. But we at least want to give a thought to that notion that part of this was a colonial leadership class that wanted to remain a colonial leadership class. So I hope that these thoughts have helped to debunk some of the things that you believed about the revolution coming in, the motivations of the men who fought it, uh, as well as some regular misconceptions that Americans, I think, still walk around with about the revolution. This isn't meant to take power away from the revolution. It's still one of the most unlikely and consequential things that has happened in global history. but it is meant to point out that our understanding of the revolution should become more nuanced, more thoughtful, and not less. And so let's not just cut it to slogans, no taxation without representation, the Boston Tea Party as the largest tax protest in global history, let us instead more deeply understand the world in which these colonists and their leaders lived and what they hoped to get out of the American Revolution. Thank you for listening. Uh, I hope that this has proved to be an enlightening uh, podcast for you. Mr. Ashworth and I will be back with more episodes as we get deeper into American history and as we seek to wrap up period three of the AP curriculum. We'll see you in class soon.